0: Let's turn to Mark chapter 14. We're in verse 12 uh, this morning. Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 14, verse 12. Let's pray together. Fathers, we spend a few moments in your word this morning. We do ask that you would speak to us, that you would pour out your spirit upon this time, that we would understand your love afresh, a new, and a deeper way. Like the Apostle Paul, we pray that we would know the height and the depth and the width of your love, the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. In this section of Scripture, we see the failure of Judas and of Peter. Judas betrays the Lord, hands over Christ to those that are going to crucify him, Peter denies the Lord, denies that he ever knew the Lord. But, you know, that's not the headliner of this passage. That's not the main focus of this. Is it really surprising that Peter failed, that Judas failed? Not really, because we know our own sinful tendencies and flesh and our own struggles. The headliner of this section of scripture is the steadfast love of God. The fact that Jesus loved Peter in the midst of his failure. In Psalms 106, it declares this about God's love. It says, Praise the Lord, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. God's steadfast love doesn't change. With all of the things that are changing in our lives, and our circumstances, our own struggles, God's love remains steadfast. I don't know about you, but it's easy for me to know of God's love here, in my mind, intellectually, to... To believe that God loves me. But it's another thing to experience God's love in my heart, and my life, on a daily basis. On a moment-to-moment basis. To live in the love of God. I'm sure that the enemy, Satan, wouldn't want us to know how much that God loves us. So there's three areas we're going to focus on this morning. Steadfast love in covenant, where Jesus gives us the new covenant. Steadfast love in surrender, where Christ surrenders in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then steadfast love and failure. Peter's failure, our failure, but yet God continues to love us. God continues to be faithful. So let's look in verse 12. Now the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? The Passover would end leading right into the feast of unleavened bread. Jesus and the disciples are Jews, and they would celebrate the Passover together. So the disciples' question is, where do you want to celebrate the Passover? He answers, and he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room, furnished and prepared. There, make ready for us. So his disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as he had said to them. And they prepared the Passover. This shows Christ's knowledge of all things. As you're coming into Jerusalem, you're going to find a man carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. And that's the house that has a room prepared, an upper room that's prepared to celebrate the Passover. This gives us encouragement to follow God's direction in our lives because he knows all things. In verse 17, in the evening, he came with the twelve. Now as they sat and ate, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. This is unlike other Passovers that they celebrated. Once a year, Throughout their lives, celebrating the Passover, when God delivered Israel from Egypt, when judgment passed over, when the blood of the lamb was applied to to the doorpost. What's different about it is Christ is going to become the Passover lamb crucified on the cross. Also, we find the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. So here's Christ, looks very intently into their eyes and says, one of you is going to betray me. A very serious and somber moment. And they began to be sorrowful and say to him one by one, It is I. And another said, Is it I? Each one of the 12 disciples saw in their own heart that they had the capacity to deny the Lord, to betray the Lord. That's interesting because I think if we're honest, there's times in our lives where we go, "Now I don't think I'd ever do that. Almost that I'm above that particular struggle, or that's for someone else, or I would never deny or betray the Lord. But I think a better perspective is one of realizing, man, I'm capable. I have everything inside of me in my wicked flesh to do anything that's under the sun. So each of these 12 disciples asked the question, could it be me? And he answered and said to them, it is one of the 12 who dips with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. We find two parallel truths here. They almost seem contradictory, but they're not. One is the sovereignty of God, where Jesus points out things are going to happen just as it's been foretold. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed, going to be crucified. But then also, we find man's responsibility. Judas is held responsible for betraying the Lord. Is God sovereign? Absolutely. We cannot deny that. Is Judas responsible? Absolutely. Are we responsible before God? Absolutely, for the choices that we make. So these verses reflect God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. In verse 22, And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Hands this to Judas. This is my body, broken for you. Hands this to Peter. This cup represents my blood, which was shed for you. So this brings us to our first point to camp on this morning, and it's steadfast love in covenant. Steadfast love in covenant. At the end of verse 24, it says, this is my blood of the new covenant. Jesus is entering into a new contract with those that believe in him. The word covenant means contract, commitment. If you were to enter into a commitment with someone else, it's your covenant, it's your contract. In the Old Testament, it's referred to the Old Covenant God gave to the children of Israel. The relationship with God was based on the law, specifically 613 commands. God said, If you do these things, you will be blessed. But if you don't, you'll be cursed. It's based on their performance. The new covenant, however, is not based on our performance, but it's based on the work of Jesus Christ, his broken body, his shed blood, that when we receive his sacrifice through faith, we're completely forgiven, 100% forgiven, not based upon our works, but based upon Jesus declaring upon the cross, it is finished. So why an old covenant? Why did God give the old covenant first? Because if he didn't, our tendency would say, I don't need Jesus. Just give me some rules to live up to and I'll be fine. And the law shows Israel's failure. It shows our failure. It shows our need for Jesus Christ. When it comes to really living in the love of God, I bet a lot of us have an old covenant relationship with God. What do I mean? We think if we keep the rules that God loves us. If we read our Bible, if we pray, if we give, if we serve, if we're moral, if the appropriate things come out of our mouths, then God loves us. If we fail, if we mess up, if we fall short, if we neglect our prayer time or neglect our time in the word, then God doesn't love us as much. And that's not the gospel. That's not the new covenant. The new covenant is God's favor, his love, his acceptance, is upon your life because of what Christ has done. So in this moment, as you look at this covenant, thank the Lord. Go, God, I'm so thankful. I'm in a covenant relationship with you that's based upon your work that I receive by grace. So freeing. We don't have any other relationship that's like that. Human relationships are based upon performance. It's based upon what you do, but God's relationship with you is based on unconditional love. A good way to evaluate if we understand this kind of relationship with God is the way we relate to others. If we have an old covenant relationship with God, we'll tend to relate with others that way. If you keep the rules, you have my favor, but if you fall short of the the rules, you have my disdain. We're not extending grace. We're not extending unconditional love. But when we understand, man, God loves me in spite of me, then that gives us the courage, the freedom, the joy, the ability to express unconditional love to others. This is a strong statement of God's steadfast love. It's a steadfast love in covenant. In verse 25, assuredly, I say to you, I'll no longer drink of the fruit of the vine, until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus is speaking of the fact, this is the last time I'm going to drink of the fruit of the vine, the wine. Here is he celebrating the Passover, until I'm in the kingdom with the Father, until I'm reunited with the Father. And when they'd sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. I'd love to have this on Spotify, Pandora, iTunes, YouTube, wouldn't it be great to hear Christ sing with the 12 disciples? What song did they sing? What hymn did they sing? Maybe something from the Old Testament, from the book of Psalms, maybe Psalms 22 that predicted Christ's suffering upon the cross. Picture Christ worshiping as he's headed to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he's going to to be arrested. Verse 27, Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Quoting Zechariah 13 verse 7. But after I've been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. So important. The resurrection of Christ. Christ predicted his own resurrection. His resurrection validates, proves that he's God. Our faith is hinges upon the resurrection. Conquered sin, conquered death, roars as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Says, I will rise again and go to meet you in Galilee. And he fulfilled that promise. Peter doesn't like what Christ says in verse 29. Peter said to him, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. So he hears what Christ said, all of you are going to be made to stumble tonight. Peter's like, not me. Not me. Everybody else might be made to stumble, but I am committed to you, and I will follow you. As we do look at Peter's failure, we understand that he's filled with pride. Just as we were talking a moment ago about realizing we're capable of all types of sin, Peter overestimated his own strength. If we were to sit down and have a conversation with Peter right now at this point in the Gospels, he did not see it within his person to deny the Lord. No matter what happens, he's like, I will not deny the Lord. What does the scripture tell us about pride? That pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. If you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. And Peter enters into this dialogue with the Lord on this subject. Jesus said unto him, Assuredly, I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Jesus says, it's going to happen. Before the sun comes up, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Christ is aware of our failure even before it takes place. He's aware of our sin before it even takes place. In verse 31, But he spoke more vehemently, If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. So I will die with you before I will deny you. And they all said likewise. All of them are in this chorus. Judas even going along with it at this point. Then they came to the place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. Gethsemane sits right at the base of the Mount of Olives, just outside Of Jerusalem. Right now, today, there are olive trees that sit in what we think is the location of the Garden of Gethsemane. They go back to the time of Christ. Most likely, in this garden, there were olive trees, lots of olive trees in this area of Israel. Why is that significant? Because in order for an olive to become olive oil, it's pressed, it's crushed. And Christ is crushed in the Garden of Gethsemane. He looks to his disciples and says, sit here and pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. As was Christ's custom, he would take Peter, James, and John with him, even into a greater inner circle, He looks at them and he bears his heart with them. He says, my soul is troubled. Notice what the scripture says. It says, even to death. This is to the degree that Christ is broken at this moment. The gospel of Luke tells us that Christ began to sweat blood. He was going through such heartbreak and agony and turmoil. What could be bothering Christ to this magnitude? For sure, the physical suffering of the cross, but it's much more than that. Christ knows that he is going to become sin. He who knew no sin becomes sin so that we can become the righteousness of God. Jesus described this in the Gospel of John as a serpent being lifted up. He is that serpent in that moment. He is becoming sin, and he is punished by the Father. Now, don't be confused. He's not sinning. He's taking on our sin. He's taking on our guilt, our shame. The Bible tells us to be the propitiation for our sins. What does that mean? To take the wrath of the Father, to appease the wrath of the Father. As he's crucified, hanging upon the cross, He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was part of the judgment of the Father. That was part of the wrath of the Lamb. In that moment, the fellowship with the Father is broken. And I believe it's all of that that's breaking Christ's heart. We need to understand this about Jesus. One of his missions was to come and heal the brokenhearted, Isaiah 61. He's a man of sorrows and he's acquainted with grief. There's not a sorrow that we go through in life that Christ doesn't know fully, completely. Every difficulty that we go through, we have an opportunity to fellowship with Christ in his sufferings. He gets it, he understands he had his own dark night of the soul in a way that nobody else can. But does everyone that goes through suffering know Christ in a greater way? Is that a guarantee? That if you go through suffering, you're going to fellowship with Christ in his suffering. No, it's a choice. It's a choice. So the sorrow that's in your life, the sorrow that's in my life, we're able to go to Jesus, the captain of our soul, who suffered in the Garden of Gethsemane, and know that he fully understands. To turn to his comfort and say, Jesus, would you comfort me? Would you be my Prince of Peace? His instructions to the disciples, is to watch and pray specifically to Peter, James, and John. He went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed if it were possible the hour might pass from him. He presses in. He goes further. He asks of the Father if it's possible to let this cup pass. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, Not what I will, but what you will. Number two, steadfast love and surrender. We see Jesus surrendering to the plan of the Father. To the crucifixion. To taking on the Father's wrath. We understand, dogmatically, absolutely from Scripture right here, that there's no other way possible for us to be saved other than for Christ to be crucified. Because Jesus says if there's any other way, then let this cup of suffering pass from me. So we have to know what the Bible teaches about salvation. There is only one way that people are saved, and that's through the name of Jesus. To teach to believe that people can be saved through any other means is to minimize the work of Christ upon the cross. If there was another way, Christ wouldn't have been crucified. The father wouldn't have punished his son, but this is the only way for us to be saved. How do we know that Jesus loves us? How in the midst of the confusion and difficulty of life, our own sinful choices, how do we really know that God loves us? Because the father sent the son and the son surrendered to the father. Jesus here is wrestling with his will and he chooses to lay down his will, to surrender his will to the Father. He knows the plan of the Father is ultimately good, even though it's difficult. This is the Christian life. If anybody tells you otherwise, they're lying to you. What is the essence of the Christian life? The covenant. To believe and receive the grace of God, then to surrender our spirit To Jesus, to say, Not my will, but your will be done. That's when we're experiencing what God intended for for the Christian life. God, I know this is difficult. I wouldn't sign up for this. This is not what I wanted for my life. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will. I know you're good, and I trust you. So here, Christ surrenders to the cup of suffering so we could have the cup of forgiveness, so we could have the cup of acceptance. Verse 37, then he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Are you guys doing okay? You maybe have noticed there's 72 verses. And right now you may be sleeping. (laughs) Yeah, we're going to go through all of them. Going to get through all of them here. Man, we can relate, can't we? Times when We want to press in to the Lord. We want to pray. He's stirring us to pray, but yet we find the need to sleep. You know, sometimes people will come come up to me. I think they're afraid that I've seen them in service sleeping. And they say, you know what, Eric, I've just, I've had such a long week. And I fell asleep during the sermon. And please forgive me. I'm like, you know what? Don't ask for forgiveness. The Lord knew that you needed rest. The Lord bless you. You know, enjoy yourself. Enjoy your you're sleeping. Sometimes I do want to wake you up, because I do see you, but but, but it's more fun to, to watch your spouse or your friend wake you up, you know, to, to nudge you. So here Peter, he's sleeping. Christ comes and wakes him up and says, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He's filled with pride, and then he was sleeping when he should be praying. Prayer is your protection. Prayer is my protection. Prayer is our fellowship with God, abiding in the vine. And as we're abiding in the vine, then we're able to say no to temptation. We can't overcome temptation on our own. It's through God in us. It's through a relationship with the Lord expressed in prayer. Don't neglect your prayer life. Again, he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again. For their eyes were heavy, and they didn't know what to answer him. Then he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See my betrayer is at hand. This happens three times where Christ comes each time they're sleeping, and now he wakes them up and says, the hour has come. Jesus lived his life with a divine timetable. He knew the hour would come where he would be crucified, and many times he said, the hour has not come. But here he's saying, it's time. It's happening. The betrayer's here. I'm going to be crucified. Immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with great multitude, with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. For some reason in my mind, I picture Christ being arrested by a small few, maybe 10 soldiers. Judas. But it says there was a great multitude. A huge multitude comes out. They've got their swords and their clubs ready to arrest Christ. They've been sent by the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Now when his betrayer had given them a signal saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. As soon as he had come, immediately he he went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they laid their hands on him and took him. Jesus knows betrayal. The sign to identify Christ was the one that I kiss. This was the greeting of a close friend. Scripture emphasizes Judas was one of the twelve, spent these three years with Christ 24 7. Christ invested in him in a unique way, poured his heart and life into Judas, and here Judas is betraying him with a kiss. Some of you have been betrayed in a very deep way by a parent, a spouse, a child, a close friend, a brother or sister in Christ, and you live in the cage of bitterness. You live in that place of saying, I'm never going to love again. I don't want to be hurt in that way. Why was Christ betrayed? Why, why, Why did Christ go through this? Again, because he wants to heal our hearts. He wants to set us free from that prison of betrayal. So as you wrestle with betrayal, wrestle with the hurt of betrayal, we all will go to Christ. Ask him to heal your heart. He understands betrayal. In verse 47, And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Which disciple did this? Gospel of John tells us it's Peter. John rats on his close friend Peter for all of eternity, saying, I I want you guys to know that Peter was the one that got out his sword. Do you think Peter was aiming for the ear? He was going for the head, and he missed and got the ear. He should have stuck with fishing, right? Let's try to put ourselves in Peter's shoes a little bit. First, Jesus told them to get swords. So that would be a little bit confusing to the disciples. He said, all right, it's time for you to have a sword. You need to get one. Looking at Peter's personality, he's probably like, oh, it's about time, you know. Finally, we get to have a sword and defend Christ, also, he's been sleeping. And so he's just woken up out of out of sleep. Have you ever woken up out of sleep and not perceived things correctly? And then you decide to take action in that sleepy state, and this is where Peter is. The other gospels also tell us that at this point Jesus picked up the ear of the servant of the high priest and healed it. Once again, providing provision for Peter's failure. Have you ever thought what it would be like to have your ear cut off and then all of a sudden have Jesus put it back on? Your ear's pretty personal to you. I wonder if this young servant ended up being a follower of Christ because he was significantly touched and healed by Christ. Verse 48, when Jesus answered and said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you didn't seize me, but the scripture must be fulfilled. You're treating me as a criminal. You're treating me as a robber. You're coming at me with swords and clubs. I was every day in the temple, pointing out that they would not arrest Christ in the temple. They were too cowardly to arrest Christ in public. Then they all forsook him and fled. All the disciples forsook Jesus and fled. Now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown about his naked body. And the young men laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. This is kind of an obscure section of scripture here. Some Bible commentators think that this young man was Mark, John Mark, who wrote this gospel. Possibly that it was at his home where Christ celebrated the Passover, he goes to bed, hears the commotion taking place, goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, just with a sheet, a linen cloth around him. They go to grab him, and grab the cloth, and he runs for his life naked. Ultimately, we don't know. All we know is a young man is fleeing naked. So what's the message of that? I'm not sure, verse 53. No. No, it's pretty clear. If you stop and think about it, it shows urgency, doesn't it? It shows that these men are fearing from their lives. That's the message of these, these verses, is the desperation of the moment. And they led Jesus away to the high priest. And with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. But Peter followed him in a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. Peter filled with pride. Peter's sleeping when he should have been praying, and now he's following Jesus at a distance. Christ never said to follow him at a distance. He said, follow me. And this speaks to something greater in our lives. Sometimes we drift from the Lord. Sometimes we follow Christ at a distance, and we feel okay about it because we haven't rebelled against Christ. It's not that we're going out and doing everything opposite to Christ. It's not the prodigal son type of story. It's just, you know, I'm okay with some distance between me and Christ. You know, it's not really a safe time for me to follow Christ. If I were to follow Christ in this way, my life could be in jeopardy. My comfort could be in jeopardy. So, so I'll just drift back here, and I'll follow at a distance. If we don't return to the Lord, good things are not in store. It leads to the next, where now Peter's warming himself by this fire. As we'll read in the next few moments, the people around the fire are against Christ. He's warming himself by the enemy's fire. What I've noticed in my life and in other people's lives, when we start to follow Christ at a distance, it's only natural that we'll start to go to the enemy's fire for comfort. Things we'd never go to, things that are sinful, things that don't glorify the Lord— with people that don't have a heart for the thing things of God. It's a counterfeit. It's never going to be able to provide what Christ can provide. So we learn two important lessons. Don't follow at a distance and don't warm yourself by the enemy's fire. If you're at the enemy's camp looking for comfort, get out. You're not going to find comfort there. You're not going to find satisfaction. Return to the Lord. In verse 55, now the chief priests and all the... The council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. The perfect, spotless lamb. There was nothing against Christ deserving of death. Verse 57, Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. They thought Jesus was speaking of the physical temple. He was speaking of his body, saying, you're going to kill my body and I'll raise it up in three days. But not even then did their testimonies agree. This is never good in a court case, trying to build evidence of why someone should be executed when the testimony doesn't agree. And the chief priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, do you answer nothing? What is these... What is it these men testify against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. Amazing. Falsely accused. As a lamb going to the slaughter, Christ answers nothing. He doesn't defend himself. It shows his surrender to the cross. He's willingly going to the cross. The other gospels tell us when Jesus was arrested, he asked, Whom do you seek? This Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said, I am. And all of this great multitude fell flat on their back. Christ was showing us he has the power, he has the authority, and he's willingly surrendering his life. He's not defending himself. He's in silence in this moment. And the chief priests asked him, saying to him, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus acknowledges, I am the Messiah. I am God. And you're going to see me in glory. Everybody will see Christ in glory. Philippians 2 tells us that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. The question is, is it too late? Because people must believe in Christ in this life in order to experience eternal life. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they condemned him to be deserving of death. The death sentence, he claims to be Christ. He claims to be God. Then some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him and to say to him, Prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. All of this communicates shame, communicates mockery. The most disrespectful thing you can do to someone to this day is spit in their face. They're spitting on Christ's face. They blindfold him and begin to beat him. If you don't have the opportunity to brace for a blow, it's much more difficult on your body. Think about if you don't see a step or a curb, tremendous damage done to your body. And here Christ doesn't see these blows coming, and he's being punched, and they're, they're hitting him, the soldiers, with the palm of their hand saying, prophesy, God's steadfast love, Jesus' steadfast love for us, that he would surrender his life, be willing to be beaten in this way. As Christ is being mocked and beaten, what's going on with Peter? Now as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied it, number one, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are saying. And he went out on the porch, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him again and began to say to those who stood by, This is one of them, but he denied it again, number two. And a little later, those who stood by said to Peter again, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean, and your speech shows it. You're a Texan. We know you're a Texan. You can try to hide it. (laughs) But your speech gives it away. You are a Texan. That's what is happening to Peter. He's from the Galilee region, from the region of the north, saying your accent is a dead giveaway. Then he began to curse and swear and says, I do not know this man of whom you speak. Number three. Why is he cursing? Why is he swearing? To try to convince them that he doesn't know Christ. A second time the rooster crowed. Then Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had said to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And when he thought about it, he wept. Steadfast love and failure. Steadfast love in failure. How do you picture Jesus looking at Peter at this moment? Do you picture maybe when your parents were upset with you as a child, Jesus is looking at Peter that way? You're going to get it, right? You're going to pay for this one. I told you, I told you. And here, you've done it. Condemnation coming upon Peter. No, I don't think so. I think Jesus looked at Peter with steadfast love. Peter, I love you. I got this. I'm not giving up on you. I'm going to go take your sin. I'm going to be punished for your sin. Crucified for your sin. I'm going to rise again. The first person that Jesus appeared to when he rose from the dead was Mary Magdalene. He said, I want you to go tell the disciples and Peter that I'm risen from the dead. Why? Because Peter needed to know, because he was living in guilt and shame of failure. Peter decides to go back fishing, what Jesus had called him out of on the Sea of Galilee. Christ pursues him to restore him. Peter fishes all night with the other disciples, doesn't catch anything. Christ is there in the early morning making breakfast for Peter. What he was looking for was at the feet of Jesus. See, see, Jesus doesn't give up on us. He's faithful even when we're faithless. John recognizes that it's the Lord. He says, Peter, it's the Lord. Peter jumps into his credit and he swims and has this conversation with Jesus. Do you love them more than these? Was he pointing to the other disciples? You claim to love me more than these other disciples. Do you love me more than these fish that I've called you away from? asks him three times. Why does he ask him three times? Because Peter denied the Lord three times. And then something crazy happens that I don't think we would do is God commissions Peter to be the first pastor of the church. This man who's failed, who was filled with pride, who was sleeping when he was supposed to be praying, warming himself by the enemy's fire. And Jesus says, take care of my sheep, feed my sheep, pastor them. The book of Acts, the spirit of God fills Peter. Gives his first message, 3,000 people get saved. Not too bad. God's steadfast love and failure. And as we close and we pray, I hope that you know God's steadfast love in your own failure. Instead of pretending that we're not like Peter, I think we understand Peter very well. We've all done things that we never wanted to do, that we never thought we would do. And to not live in guilt, to not live in shame, to not live in condemnation, but to allow Christ to have a conversation with us to restore us. He died for our sin. He's faithful when we're faithless and allow him to do a transforming, redemptive work in our lives. Maybe you don't know the Lord. Maybe you've never said yes to Christ. And in this moment, as we sing this last song, there's gonna be a prayer team here in the front if you feel Christ calling you, knocking upon the door of your life, I'm gonna ask that you'd come, come forward right during this last song and let someone know I'm ready to receive Christ as my savior. I've never put my trust in his work upon the cross, his death and resurrection. I realize there's no other way for me to be saved. Or maybe you need to come back to the Lord. You know, you know that you're following the Lord at a distance or maybe you've rebelled from God. How's the enemy's fire working out for you? Are you finding what you're looking for there? Are you finding the comfort that you're so desperately longing for? Come back to the Lord. Jesus hasn't given up on you. He hasn't cast you away. In your moment of failure, he went to the cross to die for you, but you need to come back. You need to swim to the Lord. And as this last song is song, come and allow someone on the ministry team to, to pray for you. Maybe you say, I am just swallowing in sorrow and bitterness and betrayal. I'm crushed. Does anybody understand? Can anybody help me? Yes. Jesus understands. He can help you. And there's a lot of great resources that are available to us in the community and in society, but they're all secondary to Jesus Christ. It's Jesus that you're looking for. It's Jesus that you're longing for. It's only Jesus that can heal your broken heart. It's only Jesus that can come and give you the comfort that you need from the sorrow, but we have to turn to him and allow the Lord to minister to your heart. So if you need to respond as we sing, please do. Let's stand and let's pray and we'll move into worship. Jesus, we know that we can read about your love, read about your sacrifice, but we need you to communicate it to our hearts. We don't want to follow at a distance. We don't want to warm ourselves by the enemy's fire. We want to be fully surrendered to you. So God, would you touch hearts? Would you bring people to yourself? Would you bring people back to you? Or would you set the captives free? So God, we wait upon you. We respond to you.